Please turn with me to Malachi. Genesis, Exodus, Malachi is in fact the last prophecy of the Old Testament, the last book of the Old Testament, if you want to call it that, book of Malachi. This prophecy is traditionally ascribed to a man named Malachi, a name which in the Hebrew means my messenger. Malachi, Malik being the word for angel or messenger, the ending there, the suffix, uh, the, en- the I ending is the personal pronoun, me or my, my messenger. During the days after the death of Ezra, and either during or just after the days of Nehemiah, Malachi wrote this prophecy. Now, there are two schools of thought on, in regard to Malachi's name. There are those that believe, as I believe, that it is actually a proper name, that it is a man named Malachi. There are many, if you ever read up on the subject, who believe that this is not a man named Malachi, that this, this is, in fact, an anonymous book from the messenger of Jehovah. The word Malik there means messenger, but it also means angel. Messenger of the Lord, angel of, of the Lord. Literally, messenger of Jehovah. So, this could have been an anonymous book written by a messenger of Jehovah. God designating him as my messenger. However, I believe, as with many of the traditional scholars and with tradition, that this is in fact the name, a proper name of a, of a man, Malachi. Really, it doesn't matter except for our own enrichment, and so that you can know as you begin to study the book on your own, should you do so, what is out there. There is evidence to support support both ideas. The book is not dated, though contextually, as we look into it, we have many clues as to when it was penned. We know from the book of Malachi that the temple was already built. That beyond just the temple being built, that a worship system had been uh, begun in the land. Now we recall, if you recall, those of you that were here for our Nehemiah evening series, which was not many in this room, but if you recall from that Nehemiah evening series, or if you've been listening to it online, in Nehemiah, in his day, the walls had been built, or excuse me, the temple had been built. Ezra came back with Zerubbabel, and they built the temple after the captivity in Babylon. Seventy years of captivity, Babylon. The Chaldeans were overthrown by the Persians. Cyrus, the first Persian king, says that the Jews may go back. Zerubbabel, Ezra, and a group of Jews go back and they rebuild the temple. However, the walls had, they started to build them, but the people of the land came, down, came by, complained to the king, said king, and by the way, at that point it would have been King Artaxerxes, these people are going to build walls and they're going to cause an insurrection. They're going to rebel against you. You don't want them to build walls. Look in the history. These people are rebellious people. These Israelites are rebellious. You don't want them to have walls. King says, yeah, you're right. Stop the building. They stop the building and then the people of the land come and they tear down the walls. They burn them. That word gets back to Nehemiah, who is the king's cupbearer. Nehemiah hears from his brother Hanani that the walls have been burned. He's grieved. He begins praying. He goes through a process of grieving and the Lord lays it upon his heart to request of the king permission to go back and build the walls. Note this is the same king who commanded the building to stop. He goes, he presents his case before the king, the king says, yeah, go do it. 
Nehemiah goes, he becomes the governor of the land. He, with the king's blessing, he rebuilds the walls. At that same time, though, the worship system had not entirely been restarted, though the walls, or though the temple had been erected, because the walls, there was no protection, and the city, there was no commerce. So Nehemiah rebuilds the walls, and then he begins to rebuild the city, and he specifically, if we recall from Nehemiah, gets the worship system back on track. He appoints the singers, he appoints the priests, he appoints people over the gates, he appoints all of these things, and then he gets the people to begin their tithes again, so that the people, uh, as they give to the priests, the priests can devote themselves to the ministry of the temple and to singing, the songs of praise. Well, if you recall from Nehemiah chapter 13, Nehemiah as governor goes back and reports to King Artaxerxes. And when he gets back in Nehemiah 13, things have changed. In those years, many people presume that it was two to three years that he was gone back in Babylon. While he was there, the people had perverted themselves once again. They had begun to intermarry with the people of the land. They, the, the priests and Levites were forced, according to Nehemiah 13, to flee back to the fields. The people had stopped paying their tithes and offerings, and so the fields were being left, or the, 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 the temple was now empty. They couldn't have anything to feed off of, so they had to run to secular jobs. They had to run back to farming to feed their family. And so the temple had been left once again somewhat desolate. As a matter of fact, there was a pagan man living in one of the tithe storerooms of the temple. Terrible things. Nehemiah comes and he cleans it up. The book of Malachi is presumed to be written because the temple system has already been erected, because the temple is there, because the system had been in place. Either we assume that it was written in this intermediary period. Nehemiah leaves. Things start to go very bad very quickly and Malachi writes this prophecy or it happens after Nehemiah comes back, cleans things up and then once Nehemiah passes off the scene and things begin to drift again. My personal belief is that this probably happened within those two to three years that Nehemiah was in Babylon just based upon the context and the things that we're going to see throughout these lessons. The second scenario is in fact the most likely to me because of the particular perversions in the way that Nehemiah deals with them. If you want the context, read Nehemiah 13. You'll find that Nehemiah 13 is very, very similar to the book of Malachi in topics. Either way, Malachi is established by this chronology as the last book of prophecy written in the Old Testament. After this book was penned, after Malachi finished writing this book, there would be over 400 years without any open vision, without any scripture written, without any communication between God and man. 400 years, and there was a great deal that happened within that 400 years. Malachi is a book of worship. It's a book about worship. Not so much defining what worship is as much as it is defining what it is by stating what it is not. What worship is not. The entire book is a condemnation upon the religious practices of a nation that claimed loyalty to Jehovah God. They even engaged in practices that seemingly reflected loyalty to Jehovah God. Yet, these displays of worship that they displayed were actually revealing half-hearted, empty, and incorrect worship in their hearts. And as they revealed the half-hearted, empty, and incorrect worship, God rejects it. 
sees it as profane, unacceptable, and even abominable in his sight. What we will see in the book of Malachi is a God that has gone out of his way to love a nation, the nation of Israel, a nation that offered in return for God's love false worship reflected in devotion to themselves and not to God. And as we look into this book, as we study Malachi together, I implore each one of us to search our own hearts, to check our own worship, that we could be assured that our worship is not false worship, that we might offer up to God sacrifices that are worthy unto his name and pleasing in his sight. That is going to be the focus of our time in Malachi. That is definitely the desire of my heart. I would also like us in the manner that doesn't reflect judgment, but rather reflects discernment, to dwell upon the church at large. Our own church and the church of those around us in light of what we will learn from the book of Malachi. And these are the questions that I want us to be asking all throughout the series. Is the worship of this church truly worshiping God, truly honoring God, or is it worshiping and honoring something or someone other than God? Perhaps that's self, perhaps that's the pastor, perhaps that's religion, perhaps that's ideals, perhaps that's rules. Is our church magnifying and lifting up something else other than God? We need to ask that question every week we're in this series about our own church. Then we need to look at the church at large. The church as, it, as we see it in culture, we need to ask, is the worship of the church at large truly worship of God or something other than God? Man, culture, pastor, religion, rules. What is being worshipped? And how is it being worshipped? And is it acceptable to God? Then we'll need to ask that question. Maybe it should be asked first. Is there false worship in my personal life? So that we can then say, well, what about the church? What about culture? What about church culture? See, it starts with us. Then it starts with us. (coughs) Then it goes to everyone. These questions will help us guide our discernment and know what is best for us what is best for our families, and what is best for our church as we seek to worship God. Christian culture presents a wide array of different forms of worship. We worship God through prayer. We worship God through music. We worship God through fellowship. We worship God through preaching. We worship God through our actions. We worship God through our demeanor. But not all of the worship we do is true Jehovah worship. Sometimes our worship gets off track, becomes false worship, and false worship is unacceptable in the eyes of God. As is typical, we'll walk through the entire book of Malachi this morning. I think it's tough for a book like Malachi, the John book, that was a tough book sermon to do. I had to squeeze a lot of material in. But I love these book sermons. I love them because it gives us perspective. We're going to spend the next eight weeks or so picking these verses apart. Let's begin by stepping out. Stepping back and looking at the whole picture so that as we get into the nitty gritty, we can remember in the back of our minds where God's going with all of this. Worship. 
False worship. Proper worship. This morning we'll hit the highlights as we seek to do so. As we see, if you have notes, if not, there are some on the back table. You may get some notes if you'd like. Three major divisions in the book of Malachi that will guide our understanding of true worship as we study the book together. Three major divisions of the book of Malachi that will guide our understanding of true worship as we study this book together. Let's look at them together. The first division is found actually in a very short portion of the book. Verses 1 through 5 of chapter 1. You worship a loving God. You worship a loving God. Oh, we're not going to read the whole prophecy this morning, but let's look at the very first five verses together as we begin. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, saith the Lord, yet ye say, wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord? Yet I loved Jacob. And I hated Esau and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Whereas Edom saith, we are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, they shall build, but I will throw down. They shall call them the border of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord hath indignation forever. And your eyes shall see and ye shall say, the Lord will be magnified from the border of Israel. The book of Malachi is structured around what I call controversies. You can see that as you look at the outline I gave you, that the book of Malachi is structured around controversies, where God makes an assertion or he asks a question, and then Israel responds to that assertion or that question in such a way as it reveals their spiritual blindness and then God responds to their response of blindness with truth. The first controversy is what we find here in verses 1 through 5. And it's a controversy over the definition of a loving God. A controversy over the definition of a loving God. God tells the nation of Judah, I have loved you. I have loved you. It is a statement that the generations in Israel have heard throughout their history. All the way back to Deuteronomy 7, 7 and 8, God said this, The Lord did not set his love upon you nor choose you, because ye were more in number than any people, for ye were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you, and because he would keep the oath which he hath sworn unto your fathers, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand, and redeemed you out of the house of, the, out of, the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh king of Egypt. God declared to them in Deuteronomy 7, I love you. And I didn't love you because of the things you did. I didn't love you because you were a great nation. I didn't love you for your strength. I don't love you for any of these things. I love you because I have chosen to love you. And I love you. And here in Malachi, God says, I have loved you. Notice Judah's response to him in verse 2. Yet ye say, wherein Hast thou loved us? They question God's claim of love to them. They question the validity of God's love for them. What a question. Wherein hast thou loved us, God? 
We're going to delve more into that next week as we begin to preach on, on Malachi 1, 1 through 5. But immediately, as we're looking big picture this morning, we see that there's a controversy here. And the controversy is a controversy of definition, of understanding. God says, I've loved you. They say, no, you haven't. They are not working with the same definition of love. See, God's statement of love, as we know, is founded upon his character. God has placed his love upon Israel because he chose to. And he is earnestly pursuing their best interests in the relationship to the covenant that he has made with them. God loved them. He gave them covenants. He made them promises. And because he loves them, because he wants what's best for them, what's the definition of love? An unconditional choice to do what is best for the one who is loved, regardless of self-interest or circumstances. Love is not about feelings. Love is not about whims or emotions. Love is a choice. And God says, I've chosen to love you. And because, because I love you, I'm going to be faithful to my covenant promises with you. God promised them blessing. God promised them the land of Canaan forever. God promised them eternal inheritance forever. God has done so. And God is showing his love in his faithfulness. But you see, Israel didn't see it that way. Judah didn't see it that way. They questioned God because of their definition of love. See, Israel was nowhere near a nation of power. They were nowhere near the nation they once were. They were small. They were weak. At the time of Malachi's writing, they weren't even autonomous. They were subject to the Persian Empire. They were, they were a, a serf nation. They were a nation under captivity and would be for the next 450 years until... The temple was destroyed in A.D. 70. And so they asked, God, where's your love? Wherein have, have you loved us? Because, see, we don't see it, God. We're not seeing your love. The same confusion can be seen in our own lives. The same confusion is seen in modern culture, both secular and religious. Whenever you hear the question, how could a loving God you immediately know you're dealing with a problem of definition. You immediately know you are dealing with a person who has redefined love, either intentionally or unintentionally, to fit his understanding, as opposed to conforming his understanding of love to the character of God. See, God is a loving God, and he will therefore do what is best for the one who is loved, regardless of self-interest or circumstances. God is a God who wants to bless Israel with his, the eternal inheritance. But we know from Scripture that God can't give a bunch of wicked, sinning people this eternal inheritance. And so he didn't just give them blessings, he gave them cursings and said, If you do this, I will bless you. If you don't do this, I will curse you in order that I may draw you back to myself. And the chastening hand of God upon Israel is for a purpose in order that Israel might be brought back to God. God is exercising his love even in their difficulties. Daniel knew that. Daniel, when he got down on his knees and prayed for God to restore the people after the 70 years, knew exactly what God had been doing, saw God's faithfulness every step of the way, even through 70 years of captivity. Even as Daniel was struggling through those years in Babylon, and he had many very difficult years in Babylon, many good years as well, he knew God's faithfulness. He knew that God's love was dependent not upon circumstances, but upon God. Love is not about doing the things that are acceptable to a person. Love is about doing that which is best. 
Can a loving God condemn men to hell? Yes, he can. Can a loving God allow you to suffer physically, emotionally, and spiritually? Yes, he can. But he will do so in love. Either to draw you to himself, to draw you back to himself, or to clean up some of the dross that is on our lives. Perhaps it's not even any of those. Perhaps it is simply to glorify himself, which is our purpose. Perhaps it is so that we might be used by God to bring others to Christ. And that is why Romans 8.28 can be so dear, near and dear to our hearts that God worketh all things together for good. To them that love God, to them that are the called according to his purpose. Because we know that God loves us and that means he's going to do what's best for us. God's not working out of emotion. God's not working out of action. God doesn't see our actions and say, okay, I love you today, and then tomorrow sees our actions and says, I don't love you anymore. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were in the depths of our sin, God loved us enough to send his son. God's love is unchanging toward us and toward Israel in the book of Malachi. So God answers the question that they ask, wherein hast thou loved us? His love for them was demonstrated in that he chose Jacob and not Esau. We're going to get into that next week, the choosing of Jacob instead of Esau. We'll, we'll talk through that and I believe that we will be able to understand that quite thoroughly next week. But as we think about Israel's past, think, think with me to Israel's history. Jacob and Esau was pretty early in Israel's history. It was before Israel was even Israel. He was Jacob. He says, I chose Jacob. Think of all the things that God did to show his love after that. Joseph goes to Egypt. Because Joseph was in Egypt, second in command in the entire nation, the family of Israel was saved from famine. Then they go to Egypt as a family. And they fall under captivity. Then God brings them out with a mighty hand. He gives them his law. He gives them his blessings. He saves them from all of his enemies. He blesses them in the land of Canaan. He gives them this land that they did not earn. They are the smallest of nations, the weakest of nations, and yet no one can stand before them. They have houses that they didn't build. They have walls around their cities that they didn't build. They have fields that were already planted that they didn't plant. They were reaping the goodness of God. Were there other proofs that God loved Israel and Israel's history? Certainly. But see, God's telling them that it was enough. The day that he chose Jacob over Esau, that should be all the proof Israel ever needs of God's love. We can apply this truth in our own lives as well. Has God shown his love to us in the daily circumstances of our lives? Well, yes, he has. The daily circumstances of today, do we see God's love? Maybe, maybe not. We might be going through very hard times. We might be going through great times. But has God manifested himself to us in love? Yes, but if nothing else, if there was nothing else that God did other than display his love through his son Jesus Christ, if that was the only act of love that God ever showed toward us, there would not be a person on this earth that could say that God does not love me. 
See, regardless of our circumstances, God loved you enough to send His Son to die on the cross. God loved you enough when you were dead in your own sins to slay His perfect Son. And if there were no other manifestation, physical manifestation of love, if we look back on Jesus Christ, that should be enough for us to know without any doubt that God loves us. That's what God is doing with Israel. He is appealing to the very beginning of his manifestations of love to show them. He says, all of that stuff I did in Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea that I did, the parting of the Jordan River, the falling of the walls of Jericho, all of these things, the amazing battles that you won over the Philistines and over the Edomites and over the Amalekites, all of these amazing battles you won. They're all manifestations of my love, but throw all of those out the window. I chose Jacob. You should not question my love for you. That's what God is saying. Romans 5, 6-8 through 8 tells us this as we apply it to our lives. For when we were yet without sin, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Those verses should assure us beyond a doubt that God loves us. And so at the beginning of Malachi, we see immediately this contention and God asserting that we serve, we worship a loving God. We worship a loving God. In Malachi 1 verse 6, all the way to Malachi 3 verse 6, two whole chapters, we see our second main section. We don't just worship a loving God, we also worship a holy God. We worship a holy God. I believe the structure of Malachi is very conducive to placing every controversy between verses uh, uh, chapter 1 verse 7 and chapter 3 verse 6 under the one question that God asks in Malachi 1 6. Look at it with me. Malachi 1 6. A son honoreth his father and a servant his master. If then I be a father, where is mine honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear? saith the Lord of hosts unto you, O priests that despise my name, and ye say, wherein have we despised thy name? I believe that verse is sort of the theme verse that covers chapter 1, verse 7, all the way through chapter 3, verse 6. God's question, where is my honor? Where is my fear? And the answer of the people, specifically the priests, how is it that we fail to honor thee? How is it that we have failed to fear thee? And so throughout these two chapters, God gives three examples of how they have failed to honor him, failed to fear him. In verse uh, 1 verse 7 through chapter 2 verse 10, we see the first example, and that is polluted sacrifices. Polluted sacrifices. The people of God were making their sacrifices as they were commanded to make. God told them they needed to make sacrifices, and that's exactly what they were doing but not in the manner they were told to do them. See, God doesn't just care if we worship. God cares how we worship. God doesn't just care if we worship. God does care how we worship. 
God demanded and he deserved their very best. And they were bringing him nothing but the leftovers. God demanded the very best of their animals for the sacrifices. God demanded a, a lamb without any impurity, externally or internally. God demanded animals that were in the best of condition to come upon his altar. And yet in this book, in this prophecy, we see God telling them they were bringing sick animals, lame animals, deformed animals, blemished animals. These were the ones that they were choosing to bring before God. Why? Because they didn't want to give up their good ones. We're just going to burn it anyway. If we're just going to burn it, let's give him our second best. And God rejected it. It was not simply that God was offended by being treated as second best. Simply put, God refused second best. God rejected second best. They brought their sacrifices and they said, God, this is what you're worth to us. They didn't say that out loud. That's what their sacrifices said to God. You are worth this. You are worth this lame animal, this sick animal, this blemished animal. And God says, I'm not even just offended. I, I reject it. It is not worship to me. It's, it's unacceptable. And we will learn as we walk through this prophecy that God expects our best at worship. Second place worship, secondhand worship is unacceptable to God. And so God states in Malachi 1 verse 11. For from the rising of the sun even unto the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. And in every place incense shall be offered unto my name and a pure offering. For my name shall be great among the heathen, saith the Lord of hosts. Basically saying, Israel, if you aren't going to give me proper worship, it will be given to me. The whole earth will know and will worship me. In spirit and in truth is where he's going with that eventually as we step into the New Testament. God will be glorified. And if God won't be glorified through his people, he'll be glorified through his actions. If he won't be glorified through those whom he has designated to glorify him, he will yet find glory. In spite of us instead of through us. I don't know about you, but I'd rather be on the side of being a vessel to give God glory than being the vessel to manifest God's glory through chastening, through rejecting. That is the place that Israel finds themselves. Israel, if you won't glorify me in your sacrifices, then I will glorify myself through you in spite of your false worship. In chapter 2, verse 11, the next proof of their refusal at fear and honor is seen. They were profaning God's holiness. In chapter 1 verse 7 they were polluting his sacrifices. In chapter 2 verse 11 they were profaning his holiness. The people had divorced their wives in order to marry women from the surrounding lands. They had rejected their covenant with their wives and by extension they had spurned their covenant with God and in doing so they had profaned the holiness of God. There's two possible ways that God might have been describing their profanity of his holiness here. The reality that the covenant marriage between two Israelites formed 
the basis for a family unit that was within the covenant of Israel. And so when they intermarried with people from these pagan lands, they were defiling literally the covenant that God had made with Israel and with his people. But beyond just that, it reflected a lack of fear of God when they had this divorce because God has divinely decreed that marriage is between one man and one woman for life. And so divorce, according to God's word, is an open statement of rebellion against God's character and against God's expectations. By these men divorcing their wives and remarrying pagan women, the men of Israel were telling God that they had no regard not just for his covenant, but also for his very character. God, your character is found in this relationship between one man and one woman for life. You have ordained this marriage relationship because it is an extension of who you are. And when I willingly divorce my wife and marry a pagan woman of the Amalekites or of the Edomites or whatever these lands were, the Edomites were gone by this point, mostly, of the Amalekites most likely, I am profaning your name. I am saying, I don't care that this is a reflection of your character and I don't care about your covenant. And so they profaned God's holiness, his set-apartness by marrying pagan women. In chapter 2, verse 17, we see the third proof of them profaning his holiness. It says in verse 17 that they wearied the Lord with their words. Verse 17 says, You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet ye say, Wherein have we wearied him? The people of Israel had become dismissive of evil. They looked at things that were clearly wrong in their lives and around them, and they looked at them and said they're acceptable. They saw that they were wrong when they looked at the character of God, the nature of God, the word of God, the commandments of God, and yet they said they're okay. These things are okay. They're acceptable. And in doing so, God says they wearied the Lord with their words. Notice the end of verse 17. Everyone that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he that delighteth in them. Excuse me, and he delighteth in them. That's what they say. They, their, their statement, Israel's statement was, those people out there doing evil, God, they're, they're fine in God's eyes. God accepts everyone. Have you heard that before? That is the exact thing that God says is profaning God's holiness. They reflect no fear of God and no respect unto the name of God when these Israelites said those men out there that are doing wrong are good in the eyes of God. These people are okay in the eyes of God. They confused good and evil, righteousness and unrighteousness, and in doing so they profane God's holiness. God rebuked such a philosophy through the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 5 verse 20 he said this, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Why is it such a problem? Why is it such a problem when we look at evil things and we call them good, when we look at good things and call them evil? Because it tramples upon the holiness of God. The qualities that make God separate from the wicked world around us are trampled on when we call them righteous. 
all of a sudden we are saying that God no longer has distinctions. Do you know what that means? That means God's not holy. If God accepts man's person, man's sin, man's wickedness, if the things that God says are evil we call good and acceptable unto God, then we're saying, God, you're not really set apart. You're not really holy. God does not take this lightly. And if you are not thinking of Christian culture right now, let me connect some dots. This is Christian culture. When people can get behind the pulpit and say that God is okay with homosexuality, with sodomy, when men can get behind the pulpit and not condemn abortion, murder, when we as a nation of churches can, I'm not talking about culture degrading, culture is going to degrade, I'm talking about how we respond to it in the church. When we begin to assimilate elements of wicked culture into our church, into our lives, when we begin to say, well, maybe God really doesn't care what I listen to or how I look or where I go or what I do, what I put before my eyes, what I put in my ears, what I say, who I marry, if I get a divorce. After all, he deserves it. She deserves it. We are degrading God's holiness. We have a church culture in America that no longer regards the holiness of God at all. And these might seem like baseless charges. I'm sorry. When we look through this book, I'm not sorry. When we look through this book, we're going to see Christian culture all over it. And this is simply the overflow of my study, and I'm probably getting a bit ahead of myself today. The next eight weeks, you will see Christian culture. I encourage you, when you see it, don't hide it, pinpoint it, mark it, know it, so that you can know what to reject. Because there's a lot of good in Christian culture, but there's an awful lot that's been corrupted. There's so little holiness of God left in Christian culture. And so God says, I love you. We worship a loving God. God says, I'm holy. We worship a holy God. Third and finally, in chapters 3, verse 7, through the end of the, the prophecy in 4, verse 6, you worship a long-suffering God. You worship a long-suffering God. The final two controversies in the book of Malachi fall under the statement. Look with me at chapter 3, verse 7 of Malachi. Even from the days of your fathers ye are gone away from mine ordinances and have not kept them. Return unto me and I will return unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. But ye said, wherein shall we return? See, it's not just God stating that they have disobeyed. This prophecy is also a prophecy of hope. God says, you've disobeyed me, but if you return to me, I will return to you. If you repent and get yourself right with God, I, God, will return and return to you. Notice the proud, wicked response of the people. 
But ye said, wherein shall we return? Literally, return to what? God, we're fine. If that doesn't flag your, your mind on Christian culture. For years now, God has been calling Christian culture back to himself. The Christian church back to himself. But you know what the church says? God, return to what? We're doing just fine. That's why it's so important that we search our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Because we might think that we're just fine. But if we're not conformed to the words of Scripture, we're not. So God gives them two examples as Malachi closes on how they have rejected the ordinances of God. In chapter 3, verse 8, he says, first of all, that they have robbed God by withholding His commanded giving. The people were expected to give joyfully unto the Lord by giving unto the Lord's work. But they had withheld their tithes and their offerings from the temple in their greed. God states that by withholding their expected giving, they were in fact robbing God of that which was rightfully His. Now there is little doubt then that if they're robbing God, that they are showing contempt, not just for God, but for God's law. And so God says, one of the ways in which you have strayed from me is you have stopped giving to me and to my work. And then in chapter 3, verse 13, he says, secondly, uh, verse 13 says, Your words have been stout against me, saith the Lord. In 3, verse 13, and throughout we see that they have spoken against God by stating that serving God is fruitless. That serving God is worthless. They have spoken against him. The people saw the success of the wicked and they stated plainly that God is not worth serving. Wicked men all around them were prospering. So what's the point of serving God, right? And do you see how this book, how this prophecy goes full circle? We began with a controversy over love. God says, I've loved you. They say, where and hast thou loved us? What does it mean that God loves us? And we find ourselves back there again. See, Israel found themselves only loving God because of what he did for them. When God's blessings upon their life, the physical manifestations of God's love through his blessings, fell off, when they stopped seeing them, they immediately said, God is no longer worth serving. This God that, that we are supposed to be serving, he's not worth it. Look at the prosperity of the wicked. Look how happy they are. Look at all the things that they've got. They don't deal with all the things I deal with. They're healthy. They're happy. They're rich. They've got all of these things. Look at their prosperity. God is not a God worth serving. And immediately we see that it comes full circle. We're back on this problem of love. We don't love God because of what he does for us or what he gives us. Folks, we love God because of who he is. We love God because of who he is, not because of what he's done for us. Israel failed to see that. At the very beginning, they failed. I, thou hast, I hast loved thee, God says. Wherein hast thou loved us? And now at the end, as God presents his last controversy, he says, you again have missed it. You have walked away from me. You have rejected me. And they say, wherein? And he says, because you say God is not worth Worshiping, But I'm a long-suffering God. Return to me, and I will return to you. There's so much application to be made in this book. I've already made a little bit of it this morning. I 
tried not to do that as I was getting into this this morning because I know that right now what I've said is somewhat baseless. I have told you things about culture and how culture connects to Malachi, but I haven't read the scriptures. And so right now you're trusting the word of Pastor Wickler more than you're trusting the words of scriptures. And I hate it when I lead people into that, but it was bubbling out of me just a little bit this morning. So over the next few weeks, I will justify my words with scripture. And as I do so, I pray that we have some various means by which we apply this to our lives. But as we look at Malachi as a whole this morning, we can actually apply some things from the overview. First, we can understand that worship is not simply tied to God's love, but to his holiness and to his expectations. That means that we cannot separate our giving, our music, our preaching, our prayer, or any other form of worship from the realities of God's character. We can't say God is a loving God and worship him in light of him being a loving God, but not in light of being a holy God. We cannot throw God out of balance and say, I'm just going to focus on God's love. And I'm just going to encourage people on God's love. And I'm just going to lead people into God's love. And we're just going to worship in a manner that, that reflects God's love. Because if you miss the holiness of God, you're missing God. We cannot do that. We see that even from the overview. Second, we understand that God does not regard all types of worship as proper worship. God wants us to worship. But he will only accept worship on his terms. God only accepts worship that is honoring to him and in conformity to his character. Worship is important. Who we worship is important. But how we worship God is also important. When we worship, we do not come to God on our terms. Worship is not designed for our benefit. Worship is not designed for our encouragement. Worship is not defined to make us feel good. Worship is is to come to God on his terms for his glory. That's what worship is about. So if we leave this auditorium this morning and we, we don't feel good about ourselves, that doesn't mean we didn't worship. If we leave the auditorium this morning and we feel great, encouraged, uplifted, that doesn't necessarily mean we've worshipped. That is not the basis. Worship is not based on me. Worship is not about me. Worship is not about you. Worship is about giving glory to God. If God has been glorified, if he has increased and I have decreased, we've done it right. We've done it right. Third and finally, worship is a privilege, but it is also an expectation. God has every right to condemn us all to a sinner's hell without reconciliation. But he chose to seek out and to restore a relationship with us. God has redeemed us from the deepest dungeons of our own sins and not just given us eternal life, but made us co-inheritors of the kingdom of God. And now, as most of us in this room stand redeemed in Christ, we have the opportunity, the privilege, but also the responsibility to show the world, both spiritual as well as physical, that only the greatness of our God stands between us and hell. And if you think about it, if you think about the reality that only the greatness of our God 
stands between us and a sinner's hell. Only the fact that God loved us when we were unlovable stands between us and a sinner's hell. How dare we withhold from God the honor that is due unto His name? How dare we draw attention to the pastor? Draw attention to the performers of the music? Draw attention to programs or churches? How dare we divert the attention from God when the only reason we're here is because of His goodness, His greatness? How dare we not show the world that? That is what God is going to confront Israel with in the book of Malachi. That is what we'll be studying over the next many weeks. And so the book of Malachi is our window into the world of proper worship. We will without a doubt be challenged throughout this series, but it is the prayer of my heart that we will be encouraged as well. I try not, I, I say this and I'm trying to, I, I'm, it's, it's the prayer of my heart that I'm saying this out of truth and not of pride, but I firmly believe that Legacy Baptist Church has structured its worship in such a way that it is conducive to accurate God-honoring biblical worship. That doesn't mean that each one of our hearts is going to come in and give God proper worship, but I believe that the structure, the direction, the, the music that we choose, the direction that our services take, the things that we engage in, the way that we engage in them, as best as I can tell before God, through much prayer, we are doing it right. So I hope and pray that this will be an encouraging series. But no man or woman in this room is perfect. No church is perfect. No, no church is perfect. No pastor is perfect. Are we doing everything right? No. And so the wonderful opportunity that we have in this Christian life is to live spirit-led and to be constantly spirit-led so that we are moment by moment doing that which is right. And this series will help us understand how it is we can gauge our worship in order to make sure that it is accurate, God-honoring, as we search our own lives and our own hearts and determine through the Holy Spirit if we personally have conformed ourselves, our families, and our church to God's expectations of worship, both in action as well as in intention. Let's pray together.